When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Taryn Winterbrill, host of Bestseller TV on C-Suite Radio. On this show, I sit down with leading business authors to find out what makes their books stand out from the crowd. With thousands of new business books and titles being published each year, we try to make it just a little bit easier for you to decide which ones are worth the read. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Bestseller TV. I'm Taryn Winterbrill. We're here with Dr. Rachel Headley. She is the author of IX Leadership, Create High Five Cultures and Guide Transformation. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Taryn. It's awesome to be here. The title grabs you because I wasn't sure to what it refers. Is this about Title IX? Is this a Roman numeral nine leadership? So what does IX mean, Rachel? IX is internal experience and it was really tough to go with IX because we knew that would be a challenge but what happens is there's a, a whole world of CX out there customer experience oh. um, and so we were working with is that a term CX yes, in CX. the biz okay yeah, i that started with I think probably the IT world where they do UX which is user experience oh. so when you actually go on your phone and you're actually using an app it's that experience they design that and then it went from UX into CX into customer experience and we were working with a company and they were saying oh we have all these new employees and we want our best customer experience but they kept telling us how their retention was turning over and so they would lose people and then they'd have to train them constantly and then they'd lose people and have to continually train on how expensive this was Interesting, and we yeah. said you know you're focused on the wrong thing. If you focus on your internal experience of your organization, then all of the retention goes away. You only train people once. Like it really changes how your customer experiences. So do you think that's the key to turnover? It's satisfactory internal experience from the standpoint of an employee? For sure. And and it's some people call it employee experience, but we feel like that's too constricting because it's really the experience of everybody, the contractors that work with you, ah, your leadership, your people. Fair point. Yeah. And so what we feel like is so much, and we call it culture too. I mean, that's another word for it, but people feel like they can't can't do anything about culture. Like it's too overwhelming. Like the company culture is struggles or it's negative and uh, it's really uh, manageable. It's designable. It's designed whether by accident or right. intention. So tell us a little bit about the culture you describe in the book, because there's a few of them and they're, they're all a little different. And as you said, you have to decide which culture you are dependent upon what your you know, office is like, I guess, so to speak. Right. And it depends on the kind of outcomes you want. Right? Sure. And so what we look at is we found was that across all industries. So I'm from aerospace. I grew up through the aerospace industry, my career, and my business partner and co-author, Meg, she grew up through manufacturing and mining. So we're from wow. these very vastly different yeah. industries. But what we saw as we worked together was the same human challenges. So some people love change and they just eat it up and they thrive in a change environment. Some people despise it. They dig their feet in, they put up roadblocks to change. And so this is a thing that's really about a lot about uh, business today is change is constant, right? And some people hate it. Some people love it. And so we really started fighting about figuring out how to 
put together a system that could actually tell a leader, well, what kind of people do you have? Do you have people that love change or are gonna, gonna really thrive? Or are you gonna have people that are really resistant? Right. And then how to, can we create some um, rules right. or strategies around how to actually work with those people? Yeah. So we created a system of four types. It's based on chaos, what we call freedom, probably you would too, uh-huh. uh, freedom to order, and then from team-driven uh, personalities to self-driven. Okay. And so our independent, we call independent CEOs, think of Elon Musk. It's a perfect example. He smokes pot on TV. Right? Yeah. And so he's independent. He's very self-driven. He doesn't need permission from anybody. He uh, is a change agent. And then all the opposite of that is our stabilizers who they go to work every day. They are experts in what they do because they can focus on one thing their whole career, whether that's a welder or an astronaut. Right. So those people don't like change as well. They're much more comfortable in a, an environment that they do the thing every day and they're great at it. But to you and I, that might think, oh, it sounds like the worst. Right. But they thrive in that. And so you want to honor where people are. Exactly. As you want to honor where they thrive. I'm just curious, the landscape of office culture today, mm-hmm. it's very buzzy. Facebook, Google, LinkedIn, mm-hmm. even Bloomberg is very millennial, right? open space, but there's a lot of free stuff. There's a lot of free food. There's people. I was just at the LinkedIn office. There's people on scooters going around, you know, the hallways. My brother, who's a corporate lawyer, was like, what is happening? Is this work? What do you think of that? I mean, what would you, how would you describe that culture? And is that culture the future? You know, that's a great question. The tricky thing about culture is that some people think culture is about ping pong tables and beer in the fridge, right? I mean, that's kind of the thing, but it's really more about designing a space that the people that you want to work for you can feel comfortable. When you talk about leadership, I mean, it's a valid point. I mean, the tone you set in the office place is going to determine the type of employee you're going to attract. For so sure. it, it's it's the foundation, you mm-hmm. might say. The thing that catches people off guard, and then that, the thing about like the LinkedIn is that's clearly a planned environment. And that's really what we're actually trying to provide a lot of leaders and companies today where they feel like they get into a leadership position. They don't have the benefit of having a a relatively young company where they feel like the culture is already established. What do I do? I just go into a leadership role and then I kind of have to deal with what I have. And that's not really true. You can really figure out how to create what you want in a culture, even in an already established company. And and you mentioned change. So how do you implement the change and the transition, especially those that are so resistant to change? Well, that is tricky. I have to be honest. (laughs) But on the other side of it, the people that love change, we can actually push farther than the people want to go, than leaders want to go. So if you have a organization that is known for its stability and its reliability and sort of those sort of orderly uh, aspects, then you don't want to be a big innovator and because your people that, you, that that are working with you like that about you. So you don't want to alienate the things that you're good at. But if you want to do change internally with an order, more of an order tolerant, what we call an order tolerant mm-hmm. organization, you have to plan it longer. You have to tell people there, there's not a thing as over communication. Tell people as long as you can as much as you can and tell people it's going to be okay. It's going to feel crazy right now, but this is where we're going and this is why it's important. And that'll really help them get there. C-Suite Radio. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. So I'm curious, what was the genesis of sort of getting this on paper? Why did you feel the need to, you know, share this? Well, I think some leaders get people kind of intuitively. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I'm not one of those people. I just don't think the way a lot of people think. And so I really, when I became a leader, what happened for me was I was a scientist. My PhD is in geography. So I started mapping the planet and understanding how humans change the world. And then over time, turns out that that was a stabilizer job, which is you do the same things like everyone else. So you could take all the data and aggregate it up. And mm-hmm. that's, that's not what I was meant to do. Mm-hmm. I was just over time. It was interesting intellectually, but I was bored. How long did you spend doing that? Oh, I probably spent two solid years sitting at a computer eight hours a day, pixel pushing, what we call pixel pushing. How long did it feel? Like an age, an eternity. (laughs) But at the time, I didn't understand this dynamic. Right. So I was surrounded by people who thrived in this environment. And I thought, there's something wrong with me. What is wrong with me that I can't, you know, do this job? And I ended up being offered an opportunity to be the operational scientist on the on the actual mission itself that was actually managing the spacecraft, the suite of spacecraft in NASA. Yeah, the Na- it's a NASA wow. U.S. Geological Survey mission. It's a shared mission. And yeah, so I was asked to be the operational science officer. So what does they, that mean? That means that I, I was in a team of 175 engineers who did everything from the health and safety of the spacecraft, uploaded commands to the spacecraft, figure out where it was in outer space and all that. Wow. All the way down to downlinking the data, talking to the spacecraft, processing all this data from what the spacecraft saw to what you and I would recognize as Earth. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very complicated system. And I got to be the one that made sure the engineers didn't mess it up. <laughs> for wow. the, they would they would probably disagree no with that. <laughs> but wow. what happened was we had a lot of changes happening. And on an engineering team on the spacecraft side, they didn't really know or they didn't have a lot of experience with how scientists actually use the data. And so if they, they could, by accident, change something unintentionally, that would make it harder or wouldn't align with how we were already using the data. So they wanted a scientist kind of around to get a sense of what that looked like. But I was really in charge. I was on the leadership team. So at one point, there was three of us on the leadership team. And, of, of a, and I was a scientist in this huge team of of engineers and I didn't know what they did. Like yeah. I knew what they, the results were and I valued that and I valued them, but I could never do their job. So I couldn't go in and say, you're doing this wrong. Your database analysis is what I didn't know any of it. Right. And so I had to figure out how to lead without knowing what they did. And that's when I kind of ner- started nerding out about leadership and change and seeing people struggle with change. And what we had this huge challenge. We were asking the U.S. government at the time, this is in the early 2000s, was asking all the other spacefaring nations to give us their data for free. Brazil. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Brazil, Japan, Italy. And did we? Um, we, th- they did mostly give their data away, but we weren't giving our data away. We were charging for our data. Okay. And so we sort of saw the writing on the wall that said, uh, we're asking everyone else to give data away. We can't really charge any, anymore. Right. We're charging thousands of dollars per image because of just well, why the would they cost. allow that? Why would they allow to exactly. go gratis? But exactly, we that was sort of the argument. I know so, nothing about space, but that doesn't yeah. make sense. To <laughs> it me. doesn't. Well, part of it is is that we spent all of the U.S. tax dollars on this, and so why would we give a U.S. tax dollar based mission? 
to Germany. They didn't pay for it. Right. Our U.S. citizens paid for it. So it was sort of the logic. Okay. Okay. But as it turned out, we were still asking everyone else for free stuff and we weren't giving it away. So, and our biggest barrier to dissemination to, for people using the data was the cost. Because if you're a high school science teacher and you want to show somebody how we're cutting down the forests in Brazil with our data, you couldn't get access to it. It's too expensive. Right. So we wanted it to be much more useful for everybody. And so we sort of read the writing on the wall, but we were making $5 million a year on sales and so we had to give up $5 million mm. and we had to re-architect the whole back end. So we were selling 25,000 images a year to the people that would pay us a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And when we went free, we ended up distributing over 25,000 images a day. Wow. Once it went free. So we can't do, we couldn't do that on the systems that we had. So we had to re-architect the back end, and this is very complicated. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. Totally. But at the end of the day, we had to figure out how to take away $5 million out of the team, which is usually people mm -hmm. and re-architect the back end and release it on time and no mistakes. Like we are operational mission and Landsat is considered the gold standard for earth imaging around the world. And so we couldn't sacrifice quality and it was a challenge. We brought the technical team in and we sort of said, this is what we want to do guys. And they went, you are out of your mind. Wow. Never happened. They thought it would destroy the mission. Wow. It was really a stressful time. But through that process, I got to see these incredible people on my team go from total, total resistance to, okay, let's see if we can do this, to what is it going to take, to designing the system, to executing and right. actually releasing on time with no problems. It was incredible to so watch. It's, I mean, it sounds incredible. So really, it's like that whole experience kind of gave you the step-by-step -step blueprint mm -hmm. that I'd imagine exists in this book. Absolutely. And I didn't know it at the time. So I was watching this yeah, happen. Yeah, that's amazing. And some people embraced change. Some people resisted. We had to figure out how to get them on board. And, and I saw my uh, leadership counterparts, you know, helping with the technical stuff and how did that make an effect? And so, yeah, so that's what got me really interested. And I'm like, well, we sort of accidentally stumbled across this way to that's do it. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. So how do we actually document that and kind of package it in a way that other leaders can actually use Amazing. it? Amazing. And now you go into businesses and implement these yeah. strategies. We do. And a lot of times we don't get called because people have changes to make or they have bad cultures or whatever it might be, what happens is they have a retention challenge or productivity. They can't get anything done on time right. or they have a team that's fighting all the time and they just can't seem to get anything done. And so they call us for those things. And then, right. but we do on the sort of on the sneaky end on the gorilla you side. Diagnose. Yeah. We go to like the root cause. Okay. Is yeah. this, is this a chaos team that has too many, that has a lot of stabilizers and they need figure out how to move those stabilizers. Is it too many chaos people right. and no stabilizers? So right. if you have that, then there's big ideas all the time, but there's no one to actually like execute or yeah. say, you know, guys, we decided this last week, let's actually stay with this decision we made. Well, so it's that really kind of magic balance. Rachel, it's terrific. It is so comprehensive, but it's fascinating because it's based in science mm -hmm. And um, it's a real eye opener and it's really attacking leadership and culture from a totally different perspective. So well done. Thank you. It's really exciting. And then it's actually a way to take the tools and leadership is, you know, we have the sea of leadership that feels good, but doesn't really solve a lot of problems sometimes. Yeah. So we really feel like this is a problem solving manual. It happens to be labeled leadership. So. Well, thank you for being here. It's an easy read, but more importantly, fascinating. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. And we look forward to the next book. Yeah, it's coming. <laughs> All right. If you'd like more information on the book, just check out our website, csweetbookclub.com, c-sweetbookclub.com. I'm Taryn Winterbrill. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time right here on Bestseller TV.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.